Hey, what's up, everybody? We have made it through another week and back with the Friday, February 4th edition of The Breakdown. Uh, just me today. We've had some great guests this week. I got another awesome guest coming up tomorrow for Saturday's Breakdown. I think I'm going to start taking Sundays off because this is a lot of work and I need at least one day of break during the week. So uh, enjoy it a ton. But uh, yeah, but going to take that off. Hey, if you're listening to this or watching it online and you are tuning in regularly, I would love your feedback on the guests we've had. Uh, do you like having guests? Which guests do you, do you get the most from? Who do you want to see back on the podcast again in the future? Would just love your feedback on that. I want to make this the best it can be for anybody who's listening. I want to get you the best information I can. Obviously, I've been pretty open with the fact that over the last few weeks, my bets haven't been fantastic, but I feel like my reads are turning around a lot and getting a lot stronger on these games. So looking forward to positive things, but I think it helps a ton to have another perspective personally uh, walking through these games, but would love to hear what you guys think and what's most beneficial to you as you're looking at making your picks and bets. So with all of that said, we've got a, I believe a nine game slate today. So let's jump in and run through these games and see what we can find. First up, we have the Bulls at the Pacers. Chicago's minus two and a half after that overtime game with Toronto last night. And the total is all the way up at 231 and a half between these two teams. Interestingly, Chicago has shot at well from three-point range on back-to-backs. They're averaging 39.9% from three-point range, uh, so really good. And Indiana allows 36.4% from three-point range at home on the season. They actually allow quite a bit less away and with some of the different splits. So this seems like a decent spot for Chicago in terms of shooting the three, which obviously is going to make a difference in terms of their offensive production. Chicago's offensive rating, though, on the other side of things in the last six on the road, it's only been 104.9. So they really haven't been playing great. And obviously, we know that they've had different people in and out of the lineup with Levine and then a lot of their ancillary players. So it's not surprising that they've struggled some. But just to say in the last six, it hasn't been great. Indiana has given up 112 points or more in seven straight home games. So, I mean, to not even sprinkle one in there that's under 110 points, that's some pretty bad defense, and this should be a spot where Chicago can do pretty well offensively. Um, one of the big reasons for this, too, is Indiana is going to be without all of their interior size, it looks like. I mean, man, you know that things change so fast in the NBA. Players are in, and then they're out, they're out, and then they're in. And so you have to watch this as we go throughout the day. But already Sabonis and Turner have been out for a while. Well, Sabonis came back, I think, for a game, but mostly out for a while. Then Bitsdale went down, although I think he's a game-time decision today, so we got to watch him. And then Isaiah Jackson went down too, and I think he's doubtful, though we have to watch that as well. I think that I heard that Taylor, who's the backup, who's actually played really well in the playing time he's gotten, I think he might be out today as well. If all of those people sit, they have nothing left in terms of size in the middle. If that's the case, and Nikola Vucevic is willing to go down uh, in the paint on the block, he should be able to do absolutely whatever he wants, which would just add more uh, to the scoring Chicago should be able to have. And even, even if they want to try to stop him, they're probably going to have to double him, which means he should be able to kick it out to wide open people on the perimeter for some three-point shots. So watch if those big guys are all sitting, because if they are, I think it's a huge advantage for Chicago in this spot. Um, 
a couple other things here. Indiana shot pretty well from three point range lately. They've shot 40% or better in four out of their last 10. So, <clears throat> you know, decent. I mean, not too much to read into that, but just wanted to point out that um, that is that is something that's been good for them lately. And then in terms of trends in this game, uh, the over is 13 and three uh, in the Bulls last 16 games following a loss against the spread, which they had yesterday. So that's something the Bulls are three and eight against the spread against Indiana in their last 11 meetings. So that doesn't look good for that. And the under is four and oh in the last four meetings. You can probably tell from the breakdown I had here. I definitely lean toward the Bulls in this spot. Even if Levine ends up sitting on the back end of a back-to-back, they still have enough to get it done here, I think. Uh, I think Vucevic is really more the key in this particular matchup. And you can tell that I'm also leaning toward the over, especially for the Bulls, with the way I think they should be able to score in this game. However, I do want to give you guys information I have that's on the other side as well. And both uh, trends between these two teams point the other way. They point to Indiana and they point to the under. So... That's the way I'm seeing this game. Uh, Hopefully, from things you're looking at, you have some stuff that can give you some direction on that one. Next game up, we have the Cavs and the Hornets. Charlotte is minus 4.5, total 218.5 here. We know that Cleveland is still incredibly shorthanded. And I mean, when I say incredibly shorthanded, Rubio's been out for a long time. But we still have Garland out and Markinen out here. Uh, Garland is the one that obviously is a big deal. So I looked at the games that the Cavs have played without Garland since Rubio went out, because I do think when they still had Rubio, they had a guy who wasn't as dynamic and doesn't shoot it as well from three, but at least he could do some similar things in terms of driving, throwing lobs, creating on offense. They don't really have anyone who can do that without Garland or Rubio. So without both of those guys, They've scored 93, 118, 108, 93, and 104. The 104 was against Houston, which is pretty pathetic to only score 104 points against Houston. And in that stretch, the toughest defense that they've faced is the Pelicans. And that's saying something. So even though they did have 118 in there and 108, like they're not playing good teams in these games. In those in that same stretch of games, they've allowed 110, 121, 104, 90, and 115. So they've played good defense in a couple, but also have given up over 110 points in three out of five. A big part of the problem here is they're shooting from three-point range. Having Markin and out hurts with that. Having Garland out hurts even more. They've shot uh, under 30% in three out of those five games, and the other two were 32 and 33.3. So they're just struggling in a lot of different facets with Garland out. Um, their, their season average without Garland is 29.4% from three point range. And with him, it's 35.9. So a pretty profound difference. Um, all right. On the other side, let's look at Charlotte. Charlotte has been pretty terrible lately in my estimation. I know they've won a few games and they've put up a lot of points a couple times, played good defense a couple times, but on the whole, just really uninspiring basketball from Charlotte. I think a big part of that is that Hayward has been out. He's been out for the last six. Um, on the on the stream, the podcast yesterday, we talked about the difference that he makes just in terms of leadership and sort of anchoring this team that is relatively young overall. And Hayward's a game time decision. And I think it does make a significant difference whether he's in or out for this game. I think if he's out, it's a lot harder to know what we're going to get from Charlotte. And if he's in, I expect them to be more consistent. So in those last six games without Hayward, 
just look how all over the map they've been. They scored 91, 90, and 107 in a few games. Then they scored 113, 117, and 158 against the Pacers, I believe it was. So um, scoring all over the place without them. Points allowed, a little more consistent, 113 or more in every game without him, all the way up to 125 and 126 in a couple games. Um, Since Christmas, Charlotte had actually allowed under 100 points in five out of 13 games until Hayward went out. So they were playing some pretty good defense, and he went out, and their defense has not been good since he did. Um, Lately, Charlotte has played worse on offense and better on defense at home. Their offensive rating is 107.8 and defensive rating is 106.7 at home. So not great for them on offense compared to the the whole season, but pretty good for them on defense compared to the whole season. Um, I think that, again, just like the last game, I think there's some important matchup stuff here. So if Charlotte's able to shoot the three well, which I think Cleveland will give them the opportunity to do, I think that they could really pull away in this game and score a lot of points. However, if they're not shooting well and they're going to rely on driving to the basket, they could be in trouble because you do have Mobley and Allen. And while Cleveland's not great with Garland out, I think one of the strengths that they have is that they could still play good interior defense. So I think a big part of this game breaks down to whether Charlotte is able to score from the perimeter or not, or if they have to try to get to the basket. Um. Even if Cleveland is able to score in this game, which I think they could really struggle to do based on all that I've shared so far, and especially if Hayward is in, I think it's still going to be because they dump it inside and find ways to get their big guys going. And so that's still going to be more of a slower pace game. It's going to be more two-pointers than three-pointers. And so I don't expect Cleveland to score a ton of points in this game. And so I see it going one of two ways. Either Charlotte has a good offensive game, pulls away, blows Cleveland out by 15-plus or the game stays close and low scoring uh, for both teams. And then maybe it stays within the spread or maybe Cleveland could even pull it out. In terms of trends on this game that um, that I think matter at all, the Cavs are one and six against the spread in their last seven. So that hasn't been going great. The Hornets are seven and one against the spread in their last eight home games versus a team with a winning road record. So that's a positive trend for them coming in here. Um, the under is 10 and two in the Hornets last 12 games following an, a, a a win against the spread. And then in terms of this matchup specifically, the Cavs are actually seven and two in their last nine in Charlotte and the under is five and one in the last six in Charlotte. So sort of like the first game, you can tell that I'm definitely leaning toward Charlotte though. I think based on that breakdown that I just shared, I'm not super confident they can cover the spread. I just think it's more likely that they cover the spread than that Cleveland does. So I, In other words, it's not a big enough edge for me to want to jump on it, though I definitely could see the game going that way. And then in terms of the under, I think I'd be tempted to look at Cleveland's team total under instead of the game under, because again, I think Cleveland's likely not to score a lot either way. But I think in one of two scenarios, it's possible Charlotte could have a decent offensive game. On to the next one. Got the Celtics, who have been red hot defensively anyway. Going against the Pistons, who had a barn burner with Minnesota. Uh, That was one of the, I went two and two yesterday on picks. This was one of the ones that was right by a lot. Had the over between the Pistons and the Timberwolves. And so they're coming in on a back-to-back here. Um, It is at home for Detroit. And we're not sure if Cade's going to play. He didn't play last night. So again, this is one of those lineup things we got to keep an eye on. 
So looking at this game, Boston ended up in terms, depending on which statistical categories you looked at, either the first or second best defense in the league in January. So they've been playing phenomenally defensively. They've allowed under 100 points in five out of their last 10 games, and the most they've allowed is 112. So in 10 straight, 112 or less. Now, Detroit has scored more recently. They've been over 109. Um, oh, I didn't have how many games here. Um, four out of 10 went over 110 is what I have. So Detroit's been a team that has been under 100 points a lot of the season. And so I think their offense is trending up a little bit. Kate has been playing better. And also getting Jeremy Grant back helps. I just think it's another competent offensive player. And so I don't think they're going to be lighting the world on fire, but I think it gives them some options. Like this would be a really tough matchup for Detroit, I think, without Jeremy Grant. Well, and if they don't have Cade, I think it's tough because if it's only Cade who has to score against a really solid defense, he's struggled sometimes uh, against those strong defenses to get his shots off. But I think if both of them play, it does give them a little bit of flexibility to be able to move the ball a little bit more and maybe get some better shots. Um, Detroit's on their longest streak of the season right now, scoring over 100 points. They've gone over that in eight straight games. And before that, their longest streak was four. So then when you, when you get trends like that, you have to decide, is it because they're trending up and they're going to be scoring more in general, or is it that they're kind of out over their skis and there's going to be some negative regression and they're going to come back to earth a little bit. One of the things that's positive for Detroit here is that Boston actually has been better at home than they've been on the road. So their defensive rating was only 108.6, which is still very good uh, on the road in January, but it was 102.1 at home. So significantly better and really stingy in terms of uh, on the road. I mean, 108.6, I think, would still be a top 10 defense, but it would be more toward that back end of the top 10 where 102.1 is right at the top. Um, And then Detroit, on the other hand, offensively on the road, they've really struggled. Their offensive rating is 101.6 in their last 15 games uh, when they're on the road, but at home it's 111.4. In that same stretch, their defensive rating is 119.4 on the road and 112.8 at home. So all of that to say that Detroit has been better offensively and defensively at home, and Boston has been better defensively, especially at home. So this plays out to maybe be an okay spot for Detroit. Not great, mind you, but okay. In terms of trends, Detroit on a back-to-back, they're fine. They're four and four against the spread, but two, five, and one to the over. And Boston on one day of rest is 11, 21, and one to the over. Uh, the under is six, two, and one in the last nine meetings between these two teams in Detroit. So despite all the stuff that I shared, I, I do lean toward the under here. Um, being at 214, it's a, a little bit low. But Boston, even in their worst defensive games recently, was giving up around 110. I think they could hold Detroit to that. Not a great offense. Um, But I think that Detroit has a chance to keep this game close, though, as well. Um, The Celtics are 0-4 against the spread in the last four meetings here. So obviously Pistons 4-0. Thought they might keep it close against the Timberwolves yesterday. Felt a little iffy. I think this is a better spot and a better matchup for Detroit than Minnesota was yesterday. And the spread is wider. It's It was seven or seven and a half yesterday, and it's eight and a half here today. So I haven't made a play on this yet, but I am interested in the Pistons plus eight and a half at home where they've played a little bit better. And because that total is low enough, I'll probably stay away from it. But I do think there's some signs that point to the under on that one as well.
Next up, the Hawks, who destroyed one of my picks yesterday. I had Phoenix minus five. Normally, I feel good at, like, I lose bets, but I generally have positive CLV on these things. I did not yesterday. I took Phoenix at minus five. It ended up at three and a half, I believe, before game time. So not not a good look for me on that one. And then the Hawks, after the first quarter, just kind of destroyed them. They had a phenomenal shooting game. Anyway, we're not here to talk about that, but just to say, the Hawks played well, and the Hawks have been playing better offensively lately. Their defense has still been kind of suspect, um, but they look like a better team than they did um, up until maybe a week or two weeks ago. It is possible that John Collins is going to be out tonight, and then Lou Williams, I think, is out. So keep an eye on those things. I, the, the biggest factor that I can see here, I mean, I'll, I'll talk about a little bit in terms of the matchup, but... It's these back-to-back -back stats. So Atlanta is three and six against the spread on a back-to-back. -to -back. Toronto is seven and two. So Toronto has just played better this season on back-to-backs than the Hawks have. Also, this game is in Toronto. Now, early on in the season, we I made a lot of my money. I wish we could go back to that time betting against Toronto at home because they were so, so terrible at home. But they've turned that around. It's the regression thing again. They've gotten better, they've gotten healthy, and they're playing better at home, even though they don't really have a home court advantage with no fans or anything like that. But but their record is better. There are some trends that kind of go either way here. The Hawks are 8-1 and one against the spread in their last nine after scoring 100 or more points in a previous game. Um, the Raptors are 7-1 and one in their last eight on back-to-back, -back, so even better if you look really recently. 7-2 and two overall, 7-1 and one recently. In terms of matchup stuff here, um, both teams played pretty hard-fought games last night. Both both teams came out with big wins, so I don't think there's too much to read into the specific games that they played yesterday. It could help the Raptors a little bit that they get, a, get to stay at home. They did play overtime, so a few more minutes that they had to play. And looking through all the stats here, I mean, I could, could go through a lot of stuff like I normally do, but the reality was, as I looked at all the different stats, I just didn't see many edges either way. Both of these teams are capable of having phenomenal nights, and both of them absolutely lay huge eggs sometimes. So they're very inconsistent, feel pretty hard to cap right now. The only other trends here is that the Hawks are 4-10 and 10 against the spread in the last 14 meetings between these teams in Toronto. Because of that and the back-to-back -back trends, I would definitely lean toward Toronto here. I haven't made a bet on this. If I was going to, it would be Toronto minus 2 in this spot. And my guess is that line will move to at least 2.5 before the game starts. So if you do like it, I would jump on that soon. Also, the over is five and two in the last seven meetings between these teams. Mm -hmm. 216 and a half, I think, is a really nice number. Um, and so that is definitely something where I would consider the over as well. Next one up, we have the Rockets at the Spurs. I mean, big thing here that we have to go to right away is Murray, McDermott, Pirtle. They all sat out last night. Are they going to play today? Here's what I would say. If they don't play, this game is trash, and I would just totally stay away from it. I mean, I'm probably going to stay away from it anyway. But if they play, then I think this could potentially be a decent spot for the Spurs. So we got to keep an eye on that. <laughs> um, and, and the stuff I looked up, like as I talk about this, I'm assuming that at least Murray is playing. And hopefully, actually, Murray and McDermott, I think they're fine without Jakob Pertle. They have Drew Eubanks, who's not great, but neither is Pirtle. And I think they need McDermott shooting on the outside. So I think if those two guys play, it's a better spot for the Spurs. 
These two teams have played twice already this year. Houston won 128-124 to 124 on January 12th, and then San Antonio won 134-104 to 104 on January 25th. Not great defenses here <laughs> overall. That's the theme. San Antonio's given up 114 points or more in eight out of their last 11 at home. But they have scored 109 or more in seven of those 11 games. So generally have scored pretty decent. And they have been without Murray for a couple of those games. So you kind of got to give them a pass on a couple of those as well. Houston has a terrible defense. It's been a little bit better on the road than at home in the last 15 uh, defensive rating of 114.3 away from home and 121.4 at home. Just atrocious. San Antonio has been actually worse on defense at home. Away from home in their last 15, their defensive rating is 109.2, but at home, 115.7. So both these teams have around 115 defensive rating in this situation. All that said, you would think I would be running to bet the over, but this total is so high. 234 and a half, it still feels to me like even with two bad teams, a lot has to go right. Number one, Murray and McDermott have to play. I do not see the Spurs scoring enough points if those two guys sit out. Then you really need, you can't have either of these teams have a really cold streak where, you know, they put up a quarter where they only score 20 points or something. It just can't happen. Also, um, in terms of this matchup, the under is 11 and four between these two teams in the last 15 meetings. The under is 4-0 and for the Spurs when they're playing on a back-to-back, which they are here. Um, so all that said, I still would lean toward the under here, actually, though I have not made a play on that, and I might not because, of course, it can go over. I mean, in the two games these two teams played, it went over once. Uh, actually, it went over twice. That's probably part of why the line's set here. But is San Antonio going to score 134 again? I just don't know. I can't bank on it. In terms of the spread, though, that's where I have a little more interest. The Rockets are 2-5 and five against their, the spread in their last seven games following an ATS win. 1-5 against the spread in their last six following a straight-up win of 10 or more. Spurs 5-1 and one against the spread uh, following a double-digit loss at home. And the Spurs are 6-2-1 and one against the spread in the last nine meetings between these two teams specifically. So again, if, especially if Murray and McDermott play, I still think the Rockets are not good at all. I think the Spurs are kind of okay when those guys play like closer to a middle of the pack. Team. I mean, below middle of the pack, but but closer. I mean, Houston is at the bottom of the league for a reason. So if those guys play, I'll be interested in San Antonio against the spread here. Next up, we have the Nets at the Jazz, Utah minus five, total of 229. Big news for the Jazz is they should get Donovan Mitchell back for this game, and they desperately need him with all the people they've had out. Uh, I didn't see Clarkson on the injury report either, so he should be back as well. Whiteside is still a game-time decision, and, and Gobert is still going to be out. And Gobert still being out is a big deal. Um, I've gone through the numbers before. I'm not going to go through all of them now. But Gobert, uh, without Gobert, Utah is worse on offense and worse on defense, and especially on defense. They need that rim protection so bad. I do think if Hassan Whiteside plays, it helps a little bit. At least it gives them some kind of interior presence. If he's out again, they really have not much of anything on the interior. It does help them a ton to have Donovan Mitchell back. 
So they score seven more points a game with him, 115 versus 108.1 without him. That's a big deal for their, their offense. They really need him. And then in terms of points allowed per game, they allow two more um, when he's out than when he's in. So it helps them a little on defense, but it's not as big. I did go look specifically, too, as, at what happens in the games when Mitchell plays but Gobert doesn't because some of these numbers are going to be skewed by the fact that Gobert is also out when Mitchell is out. So in there were four games recently where Mitchell played and Gobert didn't. And the Jazz scored 115, 113, 116, and 91. Obviously, the 91 is kind of disturbing, but the other three, 113 and up, really not bad. In those games, they allowed 109, 125, 126, and 111. So not great defense in those games. And especially when you consider who those games were against. They were against Denver, Indiana, Detroit, and Cleveland. Not exactly a murderer's row, especially as of late. So what I take away from all of that information, Gobert, Mitchell, these recent games, is I think Utah's offense has helped tremendously by having Mitchell back. And I think they'll be kind of okay, especially playing a Brooklyn defense that is just atrocious on the road. Um, in their last uh, – oh, that's offensive rating, sorry. Um, but on the other hand, I think Utah is still going to struggle on defense. Kyrie likes to get to the rim. Harden sometimes does. This is – still a team that has enough on offense to really put up a fight on that side of the ball. And so I think that Utah could still struggle against Brooklyn uh, on the defensive side of things. Brooklyn, uh, while they have not been good lately, in their last 15, they do have an offensive rating around 117 on the road and around 117 when they're on one day of rest, which is tonight. That's really strong. So I look for Brooklyn to put up a good performance here offensively. They don't really ever put up a good defensive performance and kind of look for the same from Utah. Um, the Nets are 3-8-1 and one against the spread in their last 12 following an ATS loss, so still not a good spot for them after losing to Sacramento. Um, the Jazz, though, are 7-18-2 against the spread playing on one day of rest. That's not good. The Nets are 1-4 and four against the spread in their last five against Utah, and the under is 5-0. and oh. Um, in the last five games as a home favorite for the Jazz. So there are a couple trends there that point against a little bit of what I like. I like the over in this game, but when I first looked at it this morning, and I wish I had bet it, I didn't. It was at, I believe, 226 and a half. 229 gets rougher. I mean, now I need both teams to score 115 points, which I, I would put this game at something like 117-115-ish. Um, and so I still like the over, but I might wait and see if I can get something better live. That's just getting closer to where there's not as much value. And if I was going to take something on the spread here, I would actually lean Brooklyn with the points because I think it's going to be a back and forth game. Next up, we have the Pelicans at the Nuggets, Denver up to minus six and a half after starting at minus five and a half and a total of two twenty two and a half. Grab some water here quick. I forgot when I'm the only one talking makes you uh, makes you need some water. So we got a few games left here uh, and let's keep cruising through them. So the Pelicans and the Nuggets have played once this year on January 28th and Denver won 116, 105, which is kind of funny. The total was 221 and here's the, the total at 222 and a half. So they're setting it right around there. Denver is finally back home after a long road trip. And they have been scoring really well lately. They scored 
110 points or more in all but one game. And the one game when they didn't was that last game against Utah where they didn't have Jokic and they didn't have Gordon and just kind of sat some guys. But even before that, on their six-game homestand previous to that road trip, they scored 140, 133, 102, 114, 118, and 117. So they've really been scoring well, though those were against some bad defensive teams, Portland, Lakers, Detroit. But they did go against Memphis, Utah, so-so on defense, Clippers kind of decent on defense. So I think in general, Denver has really been trending up offensively. It does feel like they've found something here and are, are clicking better on the offensive side of the ball. In the last 15 games, Denver has an offensive rating of 124 at home and 114.5 on the road. So really great offensively at home in their last 15 games. Defensive rating is 115 at home and 109 on the road. So they've been giving up a little bit more at home than they have on the road. All this is pointing in the direction of points being scored on the Denver side of things. Now, on the Pelican side, they should have uh, Ingram again tonight. He was back in the last game. I do think that matters a ton. The Pelicans have quite a few decent secondary pieces. Josh Hart, I think he's a game-time decision, but pretty good. Herb Jones, maybe not great at scoring, but, but a good player. Devontae Graham. So there's good pieces around, but when those guys have to take the lead role, the Pelicans really struggle. When Ingram can take the lead role and they can play off of him, I think they're a much better team. And so I think him being back puts them in a decent spot here tonight. They have only scored over 110 points in three out of eight road games in January, and they only score two more points with, with Ingram on the season than without him. So sometimes, though, those stats can be deceiving because when you watch the game and see how it plays out, it makes more of an impact than what it has on the scoreboard. They do also allow six points less with him in. So I think that they just play a little bit slower with him in, um, and he affects both ends of the floor that way. Um, looking at the total here, uh, and actually when I was looking at it before, it was 221 and a half, so this number could be just slightly different. But Denver's gone over that in eight out of their last 10 games, but New Orleans stayed under that in seven of their last 10. So this just feels a cla like a clash between Two teams that I actually think are getting better and playing decent, but one of them is getting better offensively, scoring a ton of points. The other one slows things down, tends to play a little bit better defensively. So which one of those wins out tonight? I think that's the tough thing, uh, the tough thing to judge. The only other thing I'd throw in here is that Jokic has played pretty well against Valanciunas over his career, especially that last game. He had 39-11-11 and 11 against Valanciunas in the first game this season. I'm not saying he's going to hit that high again, but Valanciunas hasn't been a problem for him. So in terms of taking a side in this game, I don't have one right now. I would lean toward the Pelicans plus six and a half just because I think it could be a decently close game. I would also probably lean toward the over, but man, that, that's a tough one. Uh, it just depends on who can kind of control the pace of this game, I think. Next up, 76ers and the Mavs. we got two games left. Two teams with very disappointing losses in their last one. Uh, Embiid should be back tonight. It looks like Porzingis will still be out and Hardaway will still be out for the Mavs. Talked a lot of times about how the Mavs are better on offense and worse on defense when Porzingis plays. So just something to keep in mind. 
So a few things on this game that I think have me interested, and I'll just say I'm interested in the 76ers side here, really probably just on the money line with the spread being this low. This is basically a pick and who knows how the line will move. It'll probably be a pick by the time this tips. Philadelphia hasn't lost two games in a row since the beginning of January. And, the, and they lost in their last one. So they've bounced back really well after a loss. I will say on the other side, Dallas lost two games in a row for the first time since the start of January in these last two games. It feels to me, though, and this is a little bit of speculation, so take it for what it's worth. It feels like Dallas is not trending in a positive direction to me. What we hung our hat on all the way through January was this phenomenal defense that they were playing. Again, depending on which metrics you look at, either the best or second best defense in the league in January. And that was the way they were winning games. They slowed it down. They grinded it out. They didn't score much, but the other team couldn't score at all. That's turned a little bit here lately. And again, you have to decide if that's regression or if it's actually a change. But in the last five games, their defensive rating has been 131.5. Yikes. 113.5. 106.1. 112.9 and 121.6. Just crazy. And, and in those five games, they played Golden State. Okay, fine. Golden State's a good offense. But in the other games, they played Portland. Sucked lately on offense. Indiana, not a good offense. Orlando, terrible on offense. Oklahoma City, atrocious on offense. So not only has Dallas been playing poorly on defense, they're playing very poorly against bad teams on the whole. This does not feel like a good trend to me. It feels like they're moving back toward more of what they were near the beginning of the season when they just weren't a very good team, to be honest. Um, In the last 10 games, Dallas's defense has been better at home than on the road, but that goes back 10 games. And again, this trend of them playing really bad defense is really strong over the last five. So I don't know which one do you want to put stock in? I guess that's the question. Also, Philadelphia tends to play well against good teams. They have these letdowns against bad teams. It seems like they're one of these where sometimes they just don't show up when they play a bad team, like they're just going to walk through it. But when they play good teams, they tend to do pretty well. They have not had a strong strength of schedule. They've played three teams that I would consider to be pretty good in their last 15 games. So 12 bad teams. Those three good ones were Memphis, Miami, and Boston. They won all three of those games. And they scored 122, 109, and 111. They allowed 119, 98, and 99. So good defense in two out of the three. Now, I don't know if Dallas is a good team, actually. I'm not convinced of that yet. But I think the perception is that they're a good team right now. And they have Luka Doncic, who's another star for Embiid to go up against. So I think Philadelphia shows up for this game, is what I'm saying. Now, Dallas on the other side, I talked about how Philadelphia... Um, does well against good teams. To be fair, Dallas has as well. They've gone five and two against teams that I would consider to be good in their last 15. So again, pretty strong. But but what I feel like is the numbers are pointing to and my eyes are pointing to is Dallas just maybe trending the wrong direction right now. Um, one more thing uh, on Dallas is in the last 10 games, their defensive rating has been 112.2 on one day of rest. Again, just not good. So both these teams are pretty good against the spread. Um, they they play to the over on one day of rest. The 76ers are 8-0 and against the spread in their last eight games after an against-the-spread loss. But on the other side, the Mavericks are 7-1 and against the spread in their last eight games following a straight-up loss. So 
again, I'm just saying there are trends that point to both sides here. And then between these two teams specifically, the 76ers are only two and five against the spread in their last seven in Dallas. So there is stuff that points to Dallas here, no doubt. I just think there's more that points to Philadelphia. And if you give me these two teams, I trust Philadelphia more in this spot. And I'll look at potentially uh, potentially playing them. In terms of the over-under, I just don't feel confident on that one. These two teams can both slow down and grind it out, though they've scored a little bit more lately. So I, I just don't have a strong feeling on that either way. Last game of the day. I mean, this is the best for last, right? The NBA has given us a treat to wrap things up here. It's the Thunder at the Blazers. Portland is up to minus eight, and the total is at 214. Oklahoma City is not a good team, and now Shea is out, Robinson Earl's out, Roby and Wiggins all out. Now, Shea is the best player there, but uh, Oklahoma City doesn't have a lot of great players, so they can't afford to lose these people. Uh, on the Portland side, Watford is a game-time decision, but other than that, and I mean Lillard and Little and people that we know, but other than that, uh, they're healthy with the people that they have. <laughs> Uh, despite some of the recent success Oklahoma City has had, uh, namely beating the Mavericks in overtime, that that overtime really masked what happened in that game. And that was that Oklahoma St City still couldn't score without Shea. Um, without him, they've scored, and this isn't counting overtime because I like to look at their totals without overtime. 103, 98, 100. Oh, this isn't without Shea. Sorry, this is just in their most recent games. 110, 87, 98, 96, 102. I mean, they scored 110 once. Other than that, it's 103 or less. Four out of those nine games I just mentioned were under 100. And without Shea, the best they've done this year still is 104 points. Every other game has been below 104, and I think it's four out of seven now or four out of six are under 100. So they're just still not scoring without him. They have been playing relatively well defensively, so I think that's worth noting. They've allowed 103, 81, 100, 111, 94. Then they did have 121 and 118, but then 104. So again, yeah, they gave up a lot of points a couple times, but generally they've been playing pretty well defensively. Now the Portland side. Holy hell. They have been absolutely atrocious the last two games, especially on offense. I mean, they just died. The main culprit seems to be their three-point shooting. They shot 18.4% and 33.3%. Those were the biggest things I can find. Now, before those last two games, and again, Portland's had people out, they had scored 116, 125, 112, and 107. Um, and the, that was already without Nasir Little. So I, I thought maybe that would be the thing we point to to talk about why they're struggling so much. But those games were without him and they scored plenty. So they'd been doing well till these last two. They hadn't scored under 100 points at home or, or they haven't since December 6th. So they've been on a, a two month run here of scoring over 100 points at home. And again, remember, Oklahoma City does not do well scoring more than 104 without Shea. Uh, so they scored under a hundred in their last two games. They haven't scored under a hundred in three straight games in a row this season. And eight out of the 10 times, this is the trend I pointed to last time where I took the Portland over. So if you came with me, I understand it was a bad look, but eight out of the 10 times they scored under a hundred this year, they bounced back 
with at least 111 in the next game. I think that's actually eight out of 11 now because they didn't in that most recent game. But still, the majority of the time when they don't score, they bounce back. And now they haven't scored in two straight games. They're going home. They're playing a decimated Oklahoma City team who plays decent defense. But I just can't help but think this is a terrible spot for Oklahoma City. Um, Portland, Portland, Oklahoma City on one day of rest both tend to play to the under. And neither one of them are phenomenal against the spread. Oklahoma City is actually better, 18, 10, and 2 on the year against the spread on one day of rest. They're also 5-1-1 one, and one against the spread in their last seven games following a straight-up win. So some trends here that are positive for Oklahoma City. The Trailblazers are 1-5 and five against the spread in their last six as a home favorite. Not good for that, that either. Um, so on this game, again, the trends point a little bit differently than how I see this playing out situationally just because of where we're at with other trends on the season and where, how these teams are playing where they're at. So in this game, what I actually am interested in looking at is looking at the thunder to go under and the, and, and the blazers to go over. Mm -hmm. I did this yesterday with Sacramento and golden state. And I went one on one golden state went over and the Kings went over. I, I picked them to go under my thought there was, I think there's a solid chance that Golden State covers the spread, that they score a lot, and that the Kings can't score. So instead of taking the spread, which if it doesn't go the way I think, I'm going to lose, I'm going to take each side, and I'm going to hope that I'm right on both counts. I was right on one, wrong on the other. It's basically a push. I sort of see this playing out similarly. I think the Thunder won't be able to score, and because the Blazers have played so poorly offensively in the last two, I think it's a good chance they bounce back here with a really good offensive game. Well, if I'm only right on one of those counts, I can still, you know, go one and one. So I haven't played that yet, and I'm not saying for sure that I will, but that is what I'm looking at here, um, just because I think Portland might bounce back. But at the same time, I'm not 100% confident in Portland at minus eight. As badly as they've been playing, it is scary to take Portland at minus eight. Um, if I had to pick here, I would probably go Oklahoma City with that many points, and I would probably go to the under because I'm pretty confident that Oklahoma City won't score. And it's possible Portland continues to struggle. All right. That is the whole slate nine games we walked through. Hopefully there was some stuff in there that's helpful to you. Hey, guys, as always, if this is something that you're enjoying or is beneficial to you, I truly do appreciate if you go and give a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening if you can like or retweet this stuff or even comment, uh, if you're watching this on Twitter or on YouTube, comment, tell me what you like. Tell me where you agree with me, where you really disagree. I'd love for you to make me better. Um, I need that interaction with other people to get different angles that I'm not seeing on things. And honestly, guys, like, uh, you know who you are. There's quite a few, a number of you anyway, who interact with me regularly on this stuff. And I truly appreciate it. It's probably the biggest thing that keeps me doing it uh, and makes me enjoy it. So Please do share those comments, share your angles, and I will see you guys on Twitter. Hope you have a great day.